probably around us, uh, not only in the states, but in the Western world broadly. Uh, we're still super blessed. God's common grace to us in this time and this place. We have so much that we can enjoy that people throughout history and even other parts of the world haven't. Um, it's still a great thing to be able to live in the United States. And just a reminder too, you know, Scripture calls us to pray for kings and those in authority. And it, and it says it's so that we can live peaceably and uh, frankly so that the gospel can be proclaimed freely. So a reminder to be thankful on one hand and also to pray, pray for those in authority over us. That's a good thing. I want to say too thanks to Willie Brooks and all the volunteers who are making the picnic that you'll go out, Lord willing, yeah, after service and enjoy. Yeah. It looks simple and it's not that big a deal on one end, but it just takes a ton of coordination and lots of little things and lots of people uh, working together to bring that to pass. So I hope you can all stay for that. Um, how many here got an email from me this last week? Raise your hand. Not many. Okay, that's disappointing, frankly. So that means you're not on our software breeze online because I sent out an email this last week talking about what I would teach on this morning. So and specifically for parents. So parents of little ones, if you didn't get that this week, then pay attention to what I'm telling you right now. So the email I sent out said sex, sex, sex. That was to get your attention. <laughs> Breeze may have failed me. Okay. Uh, this is intended to be a G-rated message about romance and sex in marriage, okay? That's where we're going this morning. So the email said, in case you missed it, if you've got little ones and you're not sure what you want them to hear this morning, there's a playground right out here, and there's a monitor you can, you can watch and listen down in the commons on the lower west side of the building, uh, or you can just check it out later. But So that's where we're going this morning, and so I'll let you make up your mind. I will say this, any of the questions that your children pose to you later is on you, okay? <laughs> <clears throat> I'm sure you're capable. Uh, let me say this by way of introduction. I was floored by uh, a set of circumstances that came up. This is probably maybe two months ago, maybe three months ago. Uh, Joshua Butler made news uh, like Icarus. His flight was spectacular, but it was short. And uh, he fell to the earth being canceled by the very people who had been promoting him. Uh, he, I was going to say he is a pastor. He was a pastor. He was on the board of the brand new uh, Timothy Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics. He was the author, the sponsored author of an article from that organization, sort of in its debut, that was published on Gospel Coalition website. A book was in the works as well. In a singular cultural moment, he, they said he resigned. That's a nice way of saying we told him to resign from the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics. The Gospel Coalition uh, took his article down and then uh, gave abject apologies for the article they asked for, edited, and published. And then uh, just, this is probably just a month or two ago, he was fired from his job at church. If you say, you know, what was the grievous sin uh, for which he was summarily canceled by pretty much everyone around him? So 
Was it sexual immorality? Or did they find out he was stealing from the center or from his church or anything like that? And you say, well, no, he, he wrote a book and he wrote an article and that's what all the hoorah was about. He compared the beauties of sexual love in marriage to the relationship of believers to Christ in his article and in his book. His book is titled, Beautiful Union, How God's Vision for Sex Points Us to the Good, Unlocks the True, and Sort of Explain Everything. Uh, the article on Gospel Coalition was removed. The book was still published. That's available. You can read it if you'd like. You can, you can still purchase that. His severest detractors accused him of an inappropriate fixation on sex. Others criticized the book as objectifying women. Uh, those who came close to defending him, and I, I would say if you look up the book online, you'll see recommendations from people associated with Gospel Coalition, the very site that, that nixed him, but the, the um, positive statements they made before the firestorm are still there as recommendations for that book from the folks that are selling it. Uh, Kevin DeYoung wrote in World Magazine a critique of the book, and he's a, he's a, a, a good guy, he's a theologian, he's, he's careful in what he says and doesn't say. He said in part, the article was off, uh, first and most importantly, it spoke of Christ's relationship to the church in ways that were lurid. He said the sexual metaphor was pressed home in a way that was awkward at best. So I assume that's the case. I haven't read the book, and I'm not endorsing the book. But this is just what struck me. We live in a day in which sex has just been trashed by the culture. It's just as low as low can get. It's been made so common, it's ridiculous. And here's a guy who writes a book to raise sex back up to this holy sense of things, and then uh, we'll sort of wind down in this direction. I'll qualify all of this in just a minute. But who's, who's um, speaking of sex in a way that's meant to be high and holy and then reorient our vision of it to say it's a demonstration and it's meant to be this picture, this foreshadowing of the kind of intimacy and acceptance that we will have and will experience with Christ forever. So it's just the, the contrast, the irony. Here's somebody trying to hold sex up as this holy, noble thing, one, in physical relationships here on earth, but two, as this pointer to Christ's relationship with us, and he gets shot down. You know, the wings of Icarus are melted in the sun, and he falls to earth. I don't know what's going on with him now, but I found the irony thick and unfortunate at best. Again, I'm not defending the book. <laughs> Don't say Mike said it was okay. I haven't read it. The irony was sick, and that's what I wanted to point out. Uh, sex is arguably one of the best gifts God ever gave his image bearers. It's inherently powerful. And so sex, physical intimacy between a husband and wife, can bind a marriage together like nothing else can. And it can also destroy lives like nothing else can. And we say this about anything that has inherent power. Dynamite, for instance, anything that's inherently powerful can be used for good, which is a great thing, but it can also be used for bad, and it's incredibly destructive. And that's certainly true of sex. 
We're in the last of the Old Testament books we're working through in the series, All Scripture is Inspired. And if you couldn't guess, this morning we are looking at the Song of Solomon. Scripture's praise to the desirability and glories of sexual love and the bonds of marriage. I'm going to give you just a little bit of history. And guys, this will be a a shorter version of through. I'm not going to read a lot of the text uh, for a couple of reasons, but but I want to give uh, some big rocks, some means by which when we read it, it tends to make sense and that we can make some points of application as well. So briefly, just as background, the Song of Solomon. Now we know, your ref, uh, there's a reference for this on your study sheet, we know Solomon wrote a bunch of songs, over a thousand it says. Spoke a bunch of Proverbs, wrote a bunch of songs. Uh, generally and historically, it was assumed that Solomon wrote the song. Now he doesn't speak in first person generally as the groom. In some places, describes him in third person or second person. Uh, Today, some of the commentators say, well, maybe he didn't write it, but it was written for him. And it was clearly written during his lifetime because it references cities that were part of his kingdom that wouldn't be the the cities in his son Rehoboam's kingdom with the division of the northern and southern parts of the country. Excuse me. Uh, It's eight chapters long. It's very short. We don't know specifically who the bride in this is. It's just like Psalm 45. When we read through that, it's like, not sure. We could make some guesses, but we don't know for sure. Uh, To Joshua Butler's point, Jews and the early church generally taught and thought of this song really as an allegory in the Old Testament uh, describing God's love for his chosen people Israel. And then in the New Testament era, the early portions of the church history of Christ's love for the church. And while the song can function, and that's actually where we'll wind down, I don't think that's actually what the song is saying we can use and we're meant to use the image of physical love because this gets to Ephesians 5 it's an image marriage is an image of something better but that's not specifically what this song is talking about and to to me it seems to do justice to the text period Uh, the poetic description of physical desire and intimacy speaks more often in metaphor and simile so it avoids perhaps what Joshua Butler didn't, which it's not lurid. You know, it's got all kinds of comparisons. And so it talks about love and the physical desire in this way that keeps it um, cleaner, holier. It doesn't come down into the weeds, if you will. I would say this. In other places, God speaks in Scripture uh, in two different ways about sex. Very graphically in Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel has some very graphic, very earthy descriptions of sex because God's comparing it to Israel's betrayal of their covenant relationship with him. He speaks about that in sexual categories that are very specific. And other times it's just matter of fact. And so here's one of the things we want to do. Um, We get sex wrong, just like we do so many things, but sex specifically, we can get it wrong uh, ridiculously in multiple directions. What we really want is to say, what's, what's God say about sex? What does that look like? And this is a song that praises romance and marital love. And so we want to take our cues from that. You know, if you were in the Victorian area, uh, the, the legs on your chair have skirts on them because we don't show legs. You know, it's this ridiculous attempt to, uh, for modesty. You know, and now we're in a culture in which sex is everywhere. It's just absolutely polluted and distorted. So, so in a sex-saturated culture, we want to take our cues from God and God's Word. 
And God's unabashed that he gave sex. You know, you guys ever grow up? Sex is our dirty secret. We discovered sex and then now it's ours. And it's like, no, no, no. God gave sex. Sex is his idea. It's not our idea. So we want to reclaim that. Song of Solomon is one of the ways that we can do that a little bit at least. I'll tell you this too. Following the storyline is a challenge. So if you read through the eight chapters, you'll be confused because it doesn't follow a straight chronology. And depending on whose commentary you read or what study Bible you have, they'll tell you different things about what they think is going on. So is chapter three into chapter six, is that one long dream that the bride-to-be is having? Or is chapter four and into chapter five, is that the the wedding night? Because it sounds like it. Well, opinions vary. So there's some back and forth, and so if you say, well, it's confusing because there's not a straight storyline, we're okay with that. We can still get the big rocks. We can still get the big picture. Uh, So when you read it for yourself, read whatever your study Bible has on study notes, read the study notes, and then you can read the the marginal notes too, just to get a sense of how how they're framing it for you as you read through. I think I forgot to say also, one of the things that modern translations have done, which is helpful, is typically either in the margin or in the text as a heading, it will say something like bride and groom and chorus, or it will say she, he, and they, because this is, a, think of it as an opera, so this is, a, this is a singing piece of poetry that has parts. And so we read it and we just hear it as literature, but this was, this was lyrics written to be sung. And so this would be more like going to hear an opera than it would be a drama or I just read a piece of literature. So these would be the parts that are sung. And that's helpful. It's hugely helpful just to recognize, oh, this is the bride speaking again or this is the chorus speaking again. Uh, this song, like Genesis 2 and Proverbs 5, remind us that it was God who created sex, and like all of his creation, it was very good. We distort it, we get it wrong, but it's not because sex is the problem. We're going to look through the engagement period, the kind of language the song uses, the consummation, an assessment of love's value, and then we'll end with a looking at this on the vertical plane. How does that speak to believers' re- uh, re- relationship to Christ and the Father, and then also some closing applications because I think that actually looms huge when you're talking about this topic today. Uh, The engagement, the song begins with a bang. It starts at verse 2, and the bride sings, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Right out of the gate, the groom replies in verse 8, O most beautiful among women, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. We'll talk about that in a minute. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. So most of what you've got through the song is this a description of how the bride, the, the bride and groom-to-be feel about each other, the affections they have for each other, and they're looking forward to their wedding day. Let me ask you just to pause for a second. If you're married... What was your own experience during your, your days of engagement? What did that look like? How would you have described your fiancé before you got married? Uh, how excited were you about your wedding day? What did that look like? What did that feel like? Think about that and hold that. Uh, the couple goes back and forth praising the other. So 
He says of her, she is like a lily among thorns. That I look at my bride-to-be, my future wife, and I say, you know what? Her beauty is such that it's like she's the flower in the midst of thorns. She sticks out that notably because she's so lovely. He, to her, is like an apple tree in the forest. I'm walking through a forest of oaks or firs or whatever, but here singularly is this apple tree. I can go sit down and it's different from everything else around it. He is like a gazelle or a stag, this sort of this nobility, this virility, this strength. She is altogether beautiful, having no flaws in his eyes. In fact, in chapter 4, the groom praises the bride in seven different ways, seven the number of perfection, basically saying she's all I could ever want. I find no fault in her whatsoever. The song also reflects reality in the dream scene. There's these pre-wedding tensions, and in the dream, the groom has come and knocked and wants to see her, and then he's gone, and she gets up, and she's traveling through the city, and she's looking for him, and she can't find him. And you know, you talk to most brides, less so the grooms, but before a wedding, is everything going to go okay? Is this really going to happen? Is the wedding going to go splendidly, or what's going to happen? Pre-wedding tensions are part of that as well. Uh, Importantly, the song itself, so here's a song about engagement and looking forward to being married, it gives three times a warning not to stir up or wake up love before the right time. Hope you have a study sheet. That's in chapter 2, chapter 3, and also in chapter 8. The fiancés are clear in their desires for each other, but they remain chaste until their wedding. And this is just hugely important for us in our day. This is a much, much more uh, a challenge in our day because this isn't where people start. If you look at another story, very short also in the Old Testament, the story of Ruth. Ruth is also a story of betrothal and engagement and consummation. And what you see in that, um, Boaz, I'm not going to go into the whole story, but Boaz wants to marry, he wants to redeem Ruth. But he's very careful for her reputation. You see that in the song. And he tells her, he's also very upfront because he tells her, I would love to redeem you and make you my wife, but I'm not actually the first in line to do that. So we're going to be careful. I'm going to be careful with you. And I'm going to be careful also for the man who may be your future husband because I don't have the first right of redemption. So you look in that story and you see there's this care for each other when they want to wed, but they're not certain, and they're not wed yet in the moment. So there's care for each other along that line. And this is the thing we say. If we're not married, we don't act like we're married. If we're not married, we don't act like we're married. Sex is for marriage. It's not for pre-marriage. It's not for dating. It's not for courtship. It's for marriage. So if something is sexual, it's to be withheld until we're married. That's what it's for. That's the confines in which God has put it in. So we guard our affections and our emotions when we're dating or when we're courting. We're trying to uh, find out, is this the person for me? We had friends years ago and the, the husband had not kissed his bride before their wedding day. And he, he said, I didn't because I wanted to make sure I wasn't kissing someone else's future bride. He was just being careful, but it was that kind of respect he had both for her And at the time, he wasn't sure this is going to be my wife or not. Even when engaged, as the case in this song is, God is clear that physical relationship is to remain non-sexual if we're not married. 
So the language in this is also uh, interesting, the, the language of comparisons that you see throughout the song. So should I compare my wife to a horse? Is, is my wife an old nag? How does that go? Now, right, I mean, the, the language is not the way we, we speak today. Should I compare her nose to a tower? Think Pinocchio or something, I don't know. Her hair to goats, her teeth to sheep. She didn't brush, they're a little fuzzy, they're a little furry. So the comparisons you see throughout, they're generally, they're rural, they're agricultural, they're, they're nature. And for us, it's not the kind of thing that we would say or the way we would say it, but usually the thought is there's some quality about the, what's being compared that speaks to the bride or the groom. There's some singular quality. So for instance, Pharaoh's horses were the epitome of horse strength and beauty and refinement. So they were the best of the best. So if he says you're like one of Pharaoh's mares, he's saying you're the most beautiful among the beautiful. You are as refined. You're at the top of the heap. No one else can compare to you. Or he says a flock of goats not only represented wealth and provision, and I, I think this is the way this works. You know, when you're engaged and you're waiting for your wedding, you're thinking about your intended pretty much all the time. So imagine a guy in the country and he sees probably a dark flock of goats winding down the hill. He's already thinking about his bride-to-be and that winding trail of dark reminds him of her hair. She's got wavy dark hair and, and a flock of goats is enough to say, oh yeah, I'm thinking about her again. Or newly shorn sheep, they're not fuzzy, they're bright and they're clean. They're white. You know, they stand out like her clean white teeth. Robbie Burns would say something like, my love is like a red, red rose. We're used to that language. She says, my beloved is like one of the trees of Lebanon. Now, if you know in Scripture, and by the way, even just in archaeology, the trees of Lebanon were the standard for trees, for nobility seen in trees. They were the biggest, the tallest. The big. They were used in building the temples and building the biggest houses, they were the kind of wood you wanted, and the trees themselves towered above the trees around them. So she says, my love isn't like a rose, he is like this towering significant tree. Uh, what would our terms of endearment for our fiancé or spouse be? Do we, do we still do that today? Do we have terms of endearment or comparison? How would I describe uh, my one and only. I, I confess, when putting this together, I was thinking about that, and I'm like, I appreciate my wife in tons of ways, but if I had to sit down and write about it, it would take a lot of thought, a lot of thought. Uh, when you get to chapter 4 and into chapter 5, which is why I'm not reading this, uh, it sounds like the couple's wedding night. Uh, some say, no, that's not the wedding night, that's her dream. And the wedding night's really, that's in chapter 8, verse 5. Uh, in, eight, in 8 verse 5, remember three times she said, don't wake in love before the time. And then you get to chapter 8 verse 5 and she says, under the apple tree I wakened my love. Some think, well, that's the point of consummation. It's not entirely clear. In either case, following verse 5 of chapter 8, you get one of the most significant and certainly one of the most lovely of descriptions of marital love in all the Bible. You know, we typically go to you go to a wedding and you hear 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. And you know that chapter is really about the love you and I have 
for each other in the body of Christ. The Corinthians didn't know how to love each other. And God says, well, this is what love is like. You know, it doesn't take a wrong into account. It doesn't hold these things against other people. That's actually about love in the body of Christ among brothers and sisters in the faith. This is about marital love specifically. And it, it is hugely helpful and hugely defining. Uh, listen to this. The bride says this thinking of her groom. This is Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. She said, set me as a seal on your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. So we're going to walk through this because this is the, the best definition, I think, of what we ultimately are getting to. She says to the groom, set me as a seal. You know, back in the day, you were uh, a seal was a symbol of your person and your authority and your ownership. So typically, you could wear a seal in two different ways, typically. One was on a ring. And so this would be more, perhaps uh, in our minds, if you think about this uh, history closer to us than this was written, you know you might uh, melt uh, wax on a letter, and the guy would, if he didn't have a stamp on his desk, he would take the stamp on his ring and he would press it into the wax. And the ring was carved with a symbol that represented him. It could be an image, sometimes they were. By the way, these are found by archaeologists all over the Middle East, these, uh, both boule and these seals. So that was one way to wear a seal. It was on a ring. The more common way was what was called a cylinder seal. And if you think of a little Tootsie Roll with a hole lengthwise through the middle where a cord was wrapped, and it also was carved, and you would roll the cylinder seal on the wax or whatever it was, the clay that you were sealing to represent this was yours or this was authentically from you or whatever. So the seal represented the owner. So she says to the groom, set me as a seal. And so she could be saying one of two things and maybe she's saying both at the same time. She says, wear me as a seal. So the seal represents her so she might be saying, you're wearing my seal because you own me, because I am yours, body and soul, and you have my seal. But she could also be saying, you have my seal because my seal is on you. You're mine. I own you, body and soul. And in fact, it probably is meant to, to um, be reciprocal because you have in chapter 6, verse 3, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. That her call for him to wear that seal said, you're mine and I'm yours. And she says, wear it over your heart, the seat of our affections. I want my seal on your heart, that your affections are mine. And guys, one of the pictures of this you see in the Old Testament, the Jewish high priest wore a seal, 12 seals, over his chest when he went in and represented the tribes to God. He was representing them, and they were over his chest, the seat of his affections. And this has repercussions, of course, for our relationship with Christ as well, which we'll get into at the end. But carry me as a seal on your affections. And then the other thing she says is, carry me as a seal on your arm. 
Now, guys, people didn't carry seals on their arm. So it's like, what does it mean? And I think it at least means this. Some people say, well, it's uh, your strength is represented. I have your strength or your strength is mine. Something I don't find that convincing. I think it's, I think it's this. Uh, wear my seal on you where other people can see it. So I'm on your affections because your affections are uniquely mine. But the other thing is I want other people to know that you're taken, that you're not your own, that you're mine. So in that way, it would be like a wedding ring. You know, we put a wedding ring on and that wedding ring communicates something to everyone who sees it. They belong to someone else. They're married. They have a spouse. They're not free. And she's saying both. I want to be the seal on your affections. And you and I are uniquely each other's. Put a seal on my heart and on your arm. Uh, she says, love is strong as death and jealousy is fierce as the grave. Uh, death is inevitable. You know, it's a power that everybody faces. We're all going to die. You can't get past death. And I think she's saying, we, we might say something like uh, uh, death and taxes are unavoidable. They're a given. And she's saying our love is a given. Death is a given to all. It's going to come to all of us eventually. Well, our love is a given for each other. And she says, fierce as the grave, jealousy, fierce as the grave. Uh, usually when we talk about jealousy today, it's almost always seen as a negative. But biblically, between spouses or between God and his people, jealousy is a positive. If you were married and you didn't care who your spouse hung out with or who your spouse gave their affections to or their physical ardor, if you weren't jealous for them, that would be wrong. That spouses are meant to be jealous for the affections and certainly the physical relationship that is solely for them. So she says jealousy is like the grave. This is serious business. And we say we don't want to take people's affections uh, lightly. We don't take those things for granted. This is, a, this is an important deal. This is a serious thing. That love is fierce as the grave in its jealousy. It says, uh, flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Love's like this fire that cannot be quenched. It's a flame and you can't put it out. And when he says the very flame of the Lord, we remind ourselves that love comes from God. God says, First John says, God is love and all earthly loves are some kind of a reflection of the love that comes from God. God's the source of all love. And so she says, what we have is something that God has provided. It's not only human, but it's also divine, divine in its origin. And she says, many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. Love has a life of its own. It can't be quenched. True love covers all. It overcomes all obstacles. You know, it won't quit. It goes to the finish line. And last, she says, if you offered money for this kind of love, she says you would be despised because the value of the love, my spouse, is so high that it's above asking, it's above price. You can't buy this. It can only be given. That's significant. Uh, that kind of love, that kind of relationship cannot be bought. It can only be given. The heart has to freely give that or you simply don't have it. Uh, to those married... Do these descriptions describe our estimation of love toward our spouse? Uh, do the fires of love still burn for each other? I'll qualify this in just a minute, but not yet. 
And if not, why not? If not, why not? So if we look back, for most of us, if we look back on our days of engagement before the wedding, all we can think about is getting married. All we can think about is that other. And being married and living together and having that relationship. And a lot of times as life goes on, lots and lots of things come in. And have we lost the value of the relationship we have with our spouse that we valued so highly once upon a time. Is that still there? Now, it doesn't mean it's the same. And we'll qualify this in a minute. It doesn't mean it's the same. But is it still there? Is it still there? Have we sold our love for commodities like hobbies, work, business, finance? Have we traded it away? Have we refused to die to our own desires and interests where that's required in order to embrace the high call to love and respect our spouse as Ephesians 5 requires, commands? Because love is costly, right? Uh, marriage is not only singular, that one man and that woman, that means it costs you everything else. Everyone else is not an option. That kind of love is hugely costly. It excludes everyone else. Is that, is that the way we still feel? Are we still bearing the cost of that kind of love? Have we traded our affections meant only for our spouse for other good but lesser loves? Probably the most common one I can think of is children. Children. The affections that would have gone to my spouse go to my children. They're, they're easier to love or I love that stage of life or whatever. Or friends or other family members. But it's easy for this thing to trickle slowly away. It may not die in a moment, but, but is it on life support? Now, I want to point out, life certainly has many seasons, and the roaring fires of first love may die down to a steadier flame, but is first love there still at all? And guys, one of the things on this, even if you say, we recognize, we age, we go through stages of life, life changes, we change, I get all of that. But when you read Revelation 2, Jesus' letter to the church at Ephesus, he indicts the church for a lack of first love. In other words, his understanding is that his relationship with us should never be less than first love. So if that's true on the vertical, I believe it's possible to have first love on the horizontal as well. I think what happens is so many other things come in and detract and take away from that that we lose that sense and really the blessing that we're supposed to have in that loving relationship with our spouse. Again, it's not always the same. It changes over time. We change. But you don't have to lose first love because you've been married for 10 or 20 or 30 years. You can still have first love. Jesus expects it from his church. Our spouse can expect it from us as well. The marriage should do all we can to foster affection for our spouse, to have regular satisfying sex life. While the desires for sex and the value of sex may not be the same for husband and wife, and will certainly change over time, and physical and emotional strains, all kinds of things affect this, right? Because they affect us. We're, we're affected by all kinds of things in life. Sex is, sex is uniquely a glue that binds husband and wife together. Uh, Kathy's met with gals in the past, and they're dating a guy, that, and they know this guy isn't good for me. 
And, but I can't break up with him. And she would always ask the same question. Are you sleeping with him? And usually, usually that was the case. And so here's the deal. You feel bound to that person because you're using the thing God gave to bind a husband to a wife and a wife to a husband. That's why it's hard to break up. Because sex is doing what sex was meant to do. It's gluing you together. So that's why you say one of the reasons that Christians, and, and I think at any stage of life and marriage, Christians should have the best, best sex lives because we know who made it. We know what he says about it. We should have a liberty. Larry talked about earlier. We have a freedom in Christ that other people don't have. We should have the best sex lives. But sex throughout our marriage should be there in all the ways it can be because it's that unique thing that continues to bind us to our spouse. We neglect it at our peril. <clears throat> Excuse me. I want to wind down. I want to get to the point Joshua Butler was trying to make and perhaps did poorly. John 3.16, your relationship and mine begins with God in the bonds of love. God so loved the world. Now this is broad and it's general. God so loved the world that he gave his son for us so that we could be united to him in this new covenant of a, this loving relationship that would never end. God so loved the world that he gave his son. So do we know that for ourselves? Is God a concept? Is, is God a system of rules that we try and keep? Or have we entered into a personal relationship with a loving God through a loving Savior, the Lord Jesus? Is that us? Because that's God so loved the world. He loved me. Christ died for the sins of the world. 1 John 2, 2 says, He died for my sins. God loved the world. He loved me. He loved you. Have we come into that relationship through simple faith? We don't work about it. It's not rules keeping. We say, thank you, Lord. I'll take that. I want that. Forgive me. Save me. I'm yours. Have we done that? Having done that, Ephesians 5 then tells us that Christ loves the church and gave himself for it like a husband loves a wife. In fact, that human marriages are meant to be representations of Christ's love for the church and the church's willing response to Christ as our leader. So we, we start in the bonds of love. God loved the world. But then once we're into the family and the bride of Christ, we realize Christ loves us uniquely so. And Christ loves us along the same lines that the bride in Song of Solomon described towards her husband. We find that having trusted in Jesus as our Savior, his love for us is stronger than death. Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. We find that like the high priest of Israel, he carries our seal over his heart because he is ours and we are his. It's co-ownership, if you will, like the bonds of marriage. <clears throat> Do we wear Christ as a visible seal to others? Do others know you're a Christian? Because see, the bride says, I want my seal on your arm so everybody knows you're mine. Kathy and I were taking a walk the other day on the trail. And it was just us. And uh, as we're walking along, an older gentleman comes along and he was a little stooped and walking looked like a little bit of a chore for him. But when we approached him, he just looked like the happiest guy you've ever seen. And he just goes like this, like, what a morning. It was cool and nice. And we said, yeah, you know, enjoy the day. It's great. It's great. It's great. We're walking away and I'm just thinking, man, what a happy guy. I wonder if that guy was a Christian. Well, as we're walking back on the way home at one of the seats along the trail, there he is. And guess what he's doing? He's got his Gideon New Testament out reading his Bible. Because he has Christ's joy. And when you saw him, you know something's different about this guy. 
Do we wear Christ? Would others know we belong to Christ? We're his and he is ours. The love for Christ is pure and it's purifying. You know, Christ's love for you and me, it comes with a price. You can't stay the same person you were and, and enjoy this loving relationship with Christ. Christ's love purifies us. We stand justified in Christ because our sins are covered, but the relationship with, we have with Him costs us some. It requires us to lay things beside and aside and behind us that used to hold us back because His love is not only pure, it's purifying, just like fire. His love for us is beyond price and beyond asking. And guys, His love is jealous. You see this throughout Old and New Testaments. God is a jealous God. God is a jealous God. Christ is a jealous husband, jealous groom. And idolatry of any stripe is always at the very heart of erring against Christ. What have I traded my affections for instead of Christ? It doesn't mean we don't love other people. It doesn't mean we enjoy, don't enjoy other things. But that which belongs solely to Christ have we given away to other things, other people. Um... I'm going to hurriedly go through just a few applications. So if you're married, I hope you feel encouraged and exhorted about your relationship with your spouse. If I read the Song of Solomon, I should come away challenged about my relationship with my spouse. But a lot of people are not married. And guys, we are in an ahistorical period Last year, the survey said there's more single adults than married adults. It's never been the case in the history of the states. Fewer people are getting married than ever. The average age now for a woman to get married is almost 29, and for a guy it's almost 30. People aren't getting married. Lots of people aren't getting married. So this is a challenging time to get married. So lots of people you and I know, lots of people here, young adults are single and celibacy can be a challenge, and that's, that's a real thing because we're, we're male and female, we're sexual creatures. Most of us aren't like Paul that says the single life is the best, the high road, choose the high road. I've talked to lots of single adults. No one's told me they were called to be single all their life. It's always they want to get married. So celibacy is a challenge. If I'm uh, not called to be single and I want to get married, I should pray about it. Ask God. He's the one that gives good gifts. You know, in Proverbs, a wife is a good gift. A, a, a godly wife is a gift from God. Her worth is far above jewels. You can't buy her, but God can give her. So if we want to get married and we're not married, we should be praying about it. Also, I've known uh, single adults who've moved around from church to church, and you know why? Because they're looking for the marriageable pool. And you know what? And I'm good with that. You know, if you're going to go fishing, you go where the fish are. And if I'm a young single and I want to get married, I should be hanging out where other unmarried single Christians are hanging out. I should be doing it. We've known several couples who have met on the Christian online dating services. That's how they met, because they want to get married, and they're looking for marriageable partners. I think that's absolutely appropriate. I clap for them. Way to go. You know, and I hope that's how God answers your prayer. So we should be seeking it if we're not. And if we're dating, we, we talked about this briefly, we want to be careful for that person we're dating or courting, whatever you call it. If we're not married, we don't act like we're married. We're careful for them. We're careful for their reputation. We're careful for their feelings, their emotions. 
We pray about that. We're careful as we interact with each other. If we stay single, if you say, I really want to be married and, and I'm still single, uh, reject the argument that God is ripping you off. He's not ripping you off. If you're single, God is still saying that's the best thing he can do for you. If you're still single, it's the best gift God wants to give you in the moment because he knows best. And we don't know all the ways that works out, but God can't do anything that's less than your best. He gave you Christ. He gave up Christ for you. He'll never sort of hold back something that would be for your benefit. He's committed to you because if he gave you Christ, he's willing to give you anything. So if you're still single, God's not ripping you off. You know, don't fall for that lie. Also, refuse the temptations, pornography, graphic stories, friends with benefits, anything outside the bonds of marriage is not sexual. Marriage is, for se uh, marriage is where sex is located. And guys, also, Jesus lived as a single celibate male. He had the same hormones everybody else had. And he didn't think his father was ripping him off. And he lived exemplary. No one was more male than him. No one was more human than Jesus. He did it successfully. And you say, I'm not Jesus. And I get that. But we do have the Spirit of Christ. We do have the Holy Spirit. We have the life of Christ within us. The transforming power of Christ within us. We can do this if that's what God calls us to. Parents, will your children grow up in your house with a lovely, exalted view of marriage and sex because they grew up in your house? Are they seeing a marriage that they would want to grow up and emulate? Do they know what first love looks like, committed love looks like, love that can't be destroyed, can't be put out because they see it in your marriage? And also as they grow, as age allows, what's appropriate to a given station of life, are they learning about sex and sexuality from you? Or are they going to their friends? And are they going online? Because that's the place they can get the information. That shouldn't be the case. And we shouldn't be ashamed or abashed or anything like that in educating our kids about what God has done, what God has provided. There's, things, there's resources along the line for that too. And all of us should be living in anticipation of our forever union with Christ as worth the wait. Because here is the thing. Song of Songs isn't trying to highlight this specifically, but Scripture does elsewhere that marriage reflects the relationship you and I will have forever with the Lord in eternity. That's what it represents. So guys, here's the thing. Nothing we've known on earth, nothing we lose because we die or God calls us and we go and join Christ and the saints in heaven, nothing we have going forward is, is going to be a loss. We're not losing anything when we lose this life that we've known on earth. We're gaining. Everything will be a gain. Nothing will be a loss. And the love you and I have known in marriage or friendship or everything else, it will be eclipsed by what we experience with Christ in heaven. We don't know what that looks like. And perhaps Joshua Butler got this wrong, fantastically so. But he's aiming in the right direction. Because Christ's love for us and our love and enjoyment of Him in eternity will eclipse every other love you've ever known. It will not even be comparable. So we're not losing anything. We'll end up where God always meant us to be. Being with Christ is the end to which you were made for. Being with Christ is the end to which God always meant you to come. And everything we experience here is a step along the way. It's a hint. It's a shadow. It's an intimation of what we've got to look forward coming ahead. So Song of Solomon 
is a great thing. It's a great thing practically for us on earth, and, but it does generally reflect what we've got coming forward. If you would uh, stand with me, I want to close by reading from 1 John 4. Let's read. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfect.